So Ezekiel 4 and 5, I have eight, eight things I want to give to you that kind of, I don't know, they stand out in, in our section today. Um, we're going to see, first of all, the word siege, and that is that the city of Jerusalem was surrounded. Um, they would be by the Babylonians. Ezekiel's going to talk about that. Secondly is the word separation. And what ends up happening is because of their sin, which is number three, they're separated from God. And so as we go through this, we're going to see this. Uh, and then, you know, think about how awful, how awful that would be to be separated from God where you prayed and he did not hear you. To me, that's like the greatest uh, tragedy in the world that as I'm talking to God, I'm trying to talk to God, he can't hear me because there's a separation. And then what ended up happening was uh, the children of Israel would experience starvation. They would be scorched. And you know, when there's the fire, we're going to see as we look at chapter 5, because chapter 5 kind of mixes it all up. That's why you don't have verses there. But chapter 5 doesn't talk about the famine and the pestilence, which is why I put sick and starving, and then the sword and how the Jews were scattered. But out of all those words, number eight's the best, huh? And we're going to see that um, there's a picture there. Ezekiel kind of says that the Lord puts his people, there's a few people that he puts in the hem of his garment. And you look at the world today, and not a lot of people are saved. There's a very few uh, that have found that narrow road and so hopefully we're among those that are saved, that are tucked away right there in the garment of the Lord. So when you think about this, I, to me, it's heartbreaking to think that this would happen to God's people in really what would be described as almost as a celestial city. When we think of the city of Jerusalem, how, how beautiful Jerusalem was at one time. Warren Wiersbe said, when the sons of Asaph wanted to describe the city of Jerusalem, they wrote in Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth in Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. How many of you know how awesome Jerusalem is? I mean, it's awesome. You know, back then, uh, even the Babylonian Talmud, so this is not a biblical resource, but they said something amazing. They said, of the 10 measures of beauty that came down to the world, Jerusalem took nine. Think about that. Even the Babylonians, when they saw the city of Jerusalem and the, the beauty of it, and, and the reason why Jerusalem was so beautiful was because they had been blessed by God. And, and that's what can happen to our life. It can be beautiful. Not if we're perfect, but if we have a heart of obedience, right? This was where Jerusalem was at one time under the, the reign of David and then the blessings of Solomon. What a, a beautiful city. The Babylonian Talmud went on to say, whoever has not seen Jerusalem in its splendor has never seen a lovely city. Now, even today, modern day Jerusalem, one guy, Samuel Hellman, he wrote, it's a place in which people actually live, yes, but it's a place that lives in them. Jerusalem, so beautiful, so amazing. And we're going to see today in our study just so judged, thrashed, ruined because of sin. So the, 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 the moral of the story is our life should be beautiful. Our life should be that, you know, blessing. You know, there's a really cool psalm um, in Psalm 84.11. Let me just read it to you real quick. Psalm 84 in verse 11, it says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I mean, God will bless your life. God will open up the windows of heaven. And I'm not saying that life will be easy, but everything that was intended for you, you will experience. The purpose for which you were created, you will fulfill. No good thing will he withhold to those who walk uprightly. But if you choose, if we choose to live in sin, the simple message is we will suffer the consequences of that. And what was supposed to be so beautiful will end up, in one sense, uh, so ugly. I'm not saying you're going to lose your salvation, but some people do actually walk away from the Lord. You know, when you look at Israel, you look at Jerusalem, the, the, 
you know, the, the life that was supposed to be lived in the promised land, that place flowing with milk and honey, it, God clearly warned them that if they lived in sin, they would not experience it. And so uh, earlier today, I read Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. And I want to encourage you, if you can, just read it because it kind of lays out the same thing. Like if you obey, I will bless your socks off. But if not, this is what's going to happen. And how many of you guys, when you had your kids, uh, some of you have had children, you know, they do something wrong and you give them a, 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 a I don't know, like a, a, a slap. I don't know what you would do first. You know, maybe it's like a stern look or a word of warning. And then if they do it again, you know, and it just, it, it increases in the consequences. Well, that's what happens when we live in insistent, persistent, consistent sin. And so I want you guys to be winners, not sinners. And so we have to ask God for wisdom in this place. You know, Warren Worsby said most of the Jewish people had become so calloused, they could no longer hear God's word. And so the Lord commanded Ezekiel to take a different approach. And we're going to see tonight what are known as action sermons that arouse the interest of the people. You know, for you guys, more, more than likely, again, I can't overgeneralize, but more than likely, if you're going to be coming on a midweek service or even the Calvary Chapel Almani period, it, um, you know, for many of you, um, you know, you're interested in the Bible. You know, you're okay. You can sit through a Bible study, you know, and you're, you're kind of holding me to it. I hope he teaches me the Bible, right? Other people, uh, they're, they're not interested. You know, they, they'd rather hear stories, they'd rather be entertained, they'd rather have their ears tickled, or just whatever it is, the latest, the greatest, psychology, sociology, things like that. So the, the Jews had come to a place where, you know, the straightforward word wasn't sufficient. And so God, in his grace, he met them there. And we're going to see Ezekiel, especially out of all the prophets, he does uh, the most what we would call action sermons. You know, although they could not be saved nationally, they could be saved personally. It was too late for the nation. But now you have all these people that are in Babylon. Remember, Ezekiel is in Babylon, and he's a prophet there. And they're thinking, well, we're not going to be here long. We're just going to be here for a short period of time. We're going back. And that's what the false prophets were telling them. Hey, everything's going to be okay. You don't have to worry about judgment, things like that. And, and, and Ezekiel was here to tell them, no, it's, we're going to be here for a total of 70 years. And so you need to get your life right. You need to get your life right. You know, and you know, if there's any of us here tonight, you know you're living in sin. God loves you that much. And he'll tell you, listen, I'm going to warn you, get your life right. You're living in sin, open-eyed, rebellion to God. And then you're like, well, I'm cool because it's been a long time, man. I've been a Christian now for, when you put in, whatever, 15 years. It doesn't matter. Eventually, eventually, that, that kind of abuse of grace runs out and God will have no other option than to, there's no other remedy, but to deal with such individuals severely. And so my prayer is that that would not be any of us. And so Ezekiel, notice what you read, first of all, regarding the siege in verse one. He says, you also, son of man, take a clay tablet and lay it before you and portray on it a city, Jerusalem. Lay siege against it, build a siege wall against it and heap up a mound against it. Set camps against it also and place battering rams against it all around. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it and it shall be besieged and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to the house of Israel. So, so it's no longer like go out there and stand in front of the temple and, and preach or get behind a pulpit and, and preach. No, he says, this is what you need to do. You need to get a clay tablet. And in those days, we have many archaeological examples of the Babylonian writings on the clay tablet. Get a clay tablet, and I want you to draw the city of Jerusalem on it. And that would be easy to see. There's this a certain shape that it has because you follow all the gates of Jerusalem 
And so uh, there on the unbaked brick or soft clay, he would write, he would be drawing the city of Jerusalem. I think we have a little picture here of what it kind of might look like, something like that. And the shape of Jerusalem would be easily identifiable. I think we have a little sketch of that as well. And so, you know, I don't know if you guys have ever, have ever gone somewhere where they, they've done live drawings or live paintings. Have you guys ever done that? It's kind of cool, huh? You know, you're there and you're just seeing them do it right in front of your eyes. Um, there's a reason why they call it drawing because it kind of draws you to it, right? And so there's Ezekiel and he's drawing the city of Jerusalem. More than likely, this is all taking place. We don't know for sure. It could be in the courtyards. It could be right there in front of his house. But, but he first of all draws the city of Jerusalem. And who knows? Maybe he does a really cool job with the gates and the details and all that kind of stuff. But it's not just the drawing. Then he gets into 3D. And God says, I also want you to put the other aspects of the siege. You know, Jerusalem had their walls. They were a well-fortified city. So it would take Babylon over a year. They would surround it over a year in order to capture it. And so you guys know in warfare, the purpose of the siege is to starve out the enemies, wear them down by halting their flow of food, supplies, and weapons. And so, he, you know, have you guys ever played like little armies? Army, um, that's kind of what it was, man. You've got the, the ta- clay tablet, and then you've got the, uh, the, the siege walls. And so this could be towers. Um, it could just be mounds that they build up. Part of it would be p- to protect them from the arrows coming from the city. Other parts would be they would actually have towers with which they could shoot arrows into the city. And then they would have these ramps. And so eventually, as they're you know, waiting there, they build the ramps up to the city so that they can uh, then roll the battering rams against the walls. And eventually, those walls would weaken. And then he mentions uh, to build little camps. And so you can visualize Ezekiel there uh, giving this you know, art- artistic you know, 3D portrayal. Uh, You've got campsites. And what that means is the Babylonians would not, they would be there for a long time. And he's saying, this is going to happen. The Jews were thinking, well, they're there in Babylon. Well, it's not going to happen. We're going to be okay. God's going to send us back. Uh, Ezekiel is saying, no, it, it will happen. And 11 years later, after he gave this prophecy, or no, seven years later, it did happen. So 605 BC, Daniel goes to Babylon with the first uh, captivity uh, 597 BC, Ezekiel goes, and then eventually in 586, Ezekiel had been there for five years. Eventually, before he starts preaching, um, then we see they were surrounded and captured by the Babylonians. And, and so, when you see this right here, we see, you know, how many soldiers were there? We don't know for sure. I do know that when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem, there was 185,000 soldiers. So there was a ton of soldiers. And Ezekiel tells them, you got to know that, yeah, this is serious stuff that the Babylonians will surround Jerusalem again. And they're able to see it with their own eyes. And hopefully it sinks in. It sinks in. The second thing he mentions right here in verse 3 is the separation. Notice again what it says. Moreover, take for yourself an iron plate and set it as an iron wall between you and the city. Set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This will be a sign to Israel. And so first, you've got to know about this. The Babylonians are going to surround Jerusalem, the siege. And secondly, you've got to know about the separation. And so if I were to talk to any of you guys here, I'm sure that that would be the one thing that you would just fear the most, that, that there would be a separation between you and God. There would be a division to where, you know, you could no longer pray. You could no longer talk to him. And so the iron plate was uh, uh, probably a, a griddle used by the Jews for baking their bread or cakes. Um, I, I, Ezekiel here identifies it symbolically as an iron wall between them and God. And that right there is heartbreaking. You know, when I think of the fact that these are the people that God loves, this is his bride, this is our children, and there's this chasm between them. You know, Psalm sixty-six, eighteen. it says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. 
You know, if, if you're harboring sin in your heart and you don't want to repent of it, then it kills your prayer life. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2 says the same thing. Behold, the Lord's hand is not short that it can't, you know, save. His ear is not heavy that it can't hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And that's what Jeremiah wrote in Lamentations 3, verse 44. You have covered yourself with the cloud that prayer should not pass through. And so that's definitely a huge incentive that we would be a holy people. Now, none of us here are going to be perfect, right? But we don't want to go into sin with eyes wide open. I I pray that we would have a healthy fear of God. And so we see the siege, and then we see the separation, and then we see the sin. And this is an interesting thing. This is something maybe I'll try uh, on another day. Um, Look what it says in verse 4. It says, Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of days that you lie on it, you shall bear their iniquity. For I have laid on you the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days, 390 days, so you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when you have completed them, lie again on your right side, then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. Therefore, you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem your arms shall be uncovered and you shall prophesy against it and surely I will restrain you so that you cannot turn from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. And so we talked already a little bit about this. The reason for all this is because of their sin. But here God, he gets really specific. And um, to me, it's just crazy How many of you here, if God said to you, okay, um, I want you to lie down on your left side um, for, what, 390 days in a row? How many of you here would say, Lord, can I have a different mission? (laughs) 390 days, he's like that. And um, it's interesting because it says right there that God tied him up. Like when I go to sleep, I feel sorry for my wife because I turn. I mean, I, left side and you're there good for a while. Right side, you're there for a while, right? I mean, you can't be like frozen on one side. That would be crazy. But Ezekiel was there. We don't know for how long. Um, some say it could have just been hours. We know it wasn't 24 hours. But every single day, waking up, going in front of his house or maybe going to the courtyard and lying down on your side for, for it would be 390 days in a row. So let's just say you went to the mall and you saw a guy there lying <laughs> there for 390 days. Eventually, it might capture your attention. Some say he was like a, a celebrity or he definitely drew, drew their curiosity. And, and while he's there on his side, it says he's prophesying. It says he's preaching. And so imagine, you know, me, you know, we got the pulpit standing up. Every once in a while, I'll sit down. But if I were lying down, on my side and I was preaching. Wouldn't you think I'm weird? Well, Ezekiel was probably a little weird, but this is what God told him to do. Why is God telling him to do this? Because they won't listen to to normal stuff. You know, they had come to a time where they need, unfortunately, uh, that 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 those visuals, you know, they, they need that excitement. I remember one time this couple, and I'm not saying this is right because I don't think it's right, to be honest, but this couple, uh, husband and wife, were sleeping in their bed as a pastor and his wife on top of the roof of this tall building. And from there, they were giving their messages. And I, I don't know, I guess, you know, they read stuff like this and they feel like they have the freedom to do that. No, this is definitely, uh, you know, different. This is definitely something that we would say, man, God showed Ezekiel this. A um, lot different than what we see nowadays. Unfortunately, people... They think that they need all those visuals. But here, God met them. Here's Ezekiel lying down. And, and as, as we've seen it, the reason, he says, is because of their iniquity. The word iniquity, look what it says in verse 4. Lie also on your left side and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. 
And so real quick, just in case you guys are interested, there's probably three primary words that kind of belong in the same category. Number one is sin. Number two is transgression. And number three is iniquity. Now, sin is missing the mark, right? And so that's the classic definition of sin. God says, I want you to do this. I don't want you to do that, whatever it might be. And you, you know, you do what he tells you not to do. You don't do what he tells you to do. You're missing the mark. That's sin, right? Psalm 32, 5 actually mentions those three words. Transgression uh, takes it a step further. It's a presumptuous sin. You know, you, you go forward and you're like, you know what? I can do this. God will forgive me. I'm a Christian. You know, and some people will go into life, you know, looking at sin, like Billy Sunday said, they, they treat it like a cream puff rather than the rattlesnake. No, sin is, is sin, but, you know, oh, I, I, God will be okay. You know, God, God will forgive me. He always has. And so, yeah, you know what? He, he will. Where, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. But is that your heart? Because that's, that's transgression. But then iniquity takes it in even a step further. Iniquity is more deeply rooted. It refers to a premeditated choice. You know, to commit iniquity is to continue without repentance. David's sin with Bathsheba that led to the killing of her husband, Uriah, was called iniquity in 2 Samuel 11, 3-4 and 12, verse 9. Micah chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Woe to those who plan iniquity. There it is. They're planning it out. They plan iniquity to those who plot evil on their beds. Woe to them. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. And so God says to Ezekiel, lie down on your side for 390 days, because that's how many years the, the nation of Israel lived in perpetual sin against me. And they thought, well, well you know, we're God's people, we're going to be fine. And then one day, boom, it came down. The judgment of God came down because of their iniquity. Now, we're not 100% sure as far as the 390 years, but I think we have a pretty good guess. Uh, Warren Wiersbe said, when you add the years of the reigns of the kings of Judah from Rehoboam to Zedekiah, as recorded in First and Second Kings, you have a total of 394 years. Uh, since during three years of his reign, Rehoboam walked with God, we end up with a number very close to Ezekiel's 390 years. And so after the kingdom separated, you have Rehoboam. The first three years, he walked with God. But then if you calculate the years from there all the way to the last king of uh, Judah, Zedekiah, there you'll get the 390 years. And so, you know, that's probably where that came from. The 40 years, we're not really sure, although we know that 40 is the number of judgment and God, you know, to me, when I was looking at this, I was like, Lord, you know, because a lot of guys say it, you just can't figure it out. You just can't figure it out. Warren Risby has a pretty good theory, but most other commentators say you can't figure out why is there 390 years? Why is there 40 years? And you want to know why I was thinking? I was thinking because we look at people and we think, oh, yeah, they're, they're fine and dandy and, and God knows their sin. God knows what's really going on in their heart and in their mind and the words and the way they talk smack. Uh, God knows all of that. We don't see it, but God sees all of it. And God says, okay, we need to do 390 and then we need to do 40. And we're like, well, we don't see it, Lord. Where, where did that come from? And God says, I know you don't see it. I see it. And one day, um, everyone will give an account. And so anyways, I don't know if you can visualize the prophet Ezekiel lying there while he's lying there. Would you guys think I was weird if I got like a bed right here and I lied down on the stage and I preached? How many of you guys think, would think I, I would be weird? <laughs> Wouldn't that be perfect going through this section of Ezekiel? <laughs> but anyways, I don't know if you can visualize him there. And notice again in verse 7, it says, you shall prophesy against it. So he's in, there's the tablet and there's all the soldiers and the camps and the battering rams and all that stuff. And, you know, you've got the iron plate and, you know, then you've got Ezekiel there lying down uh, next to that. And as he's there, he's prophesying. As he's there, 
he's uh, preaching. You know, again, how did he do it? How did he stay in that same spot? And the Bible says in verse 8 that God would restrain him. Literally in the Hebrew, it says God would put ropes on him. And so, um, again, not there 24-7, but I bet you almost anything he was there for a large portion of time. Um, he would definitely need food. And so this leads to the next uh, point, and that is there, there's a message of, of uh, not just siege and separation and sin, but now of uh, a future starvation. Look at verse 9. It says, Also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them into one vessel, and you've got to grind it up, and then you make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days you shall eat it, and your food which you eat shall be by weight 20 shekels a day, so that's 8 ounces. That's probably just like a little loaf of bread, about that big. And then from time to time you shall eat it. You shall also drink water by measure, one-sixth of a hen, so that would be a total of 16 ounces. From time to time you should drink it. So again, if you can visualize it, he's lying down. Every once in a while he gets some of that bread and he takes a little bite. And that's what he would do. That would be the rationing uh, every single day. Now, again, you know, I, I don't know if you would be down with being this kind of prophet. You're like, okay, Lord, I'll, 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 be, a, I'll be a pastor. Okay, Lord, I'll be a prophet. I'll be a teacher. And God says, okay, well, you need to take 390 days um, plus 40 days, and this is what you're going to eat. You're going to eat eight ounces of bread each day. And there's, uh, there's some that believe that 40 days, he would not eat anything. Imagine, and then you're lying down, and there's going to be other things that Ezekiel goes through. When his wife dies, Ezekiel's not allowed to mourn for her. There's, there's so much that these guys went through that, that, you know, we have to, Lord, what's going on here? You know, here he talks about these, these foods, and the, the ones that are mentioned here, they, they could normally be found in abundance, but during the siege, when the Babylonians would surround Jerusalem, with supplies would be so scarce that eventually they would just take whatever they could, lump it together for a meal. I was thinking, and I don't know if it's like this for you guys here. You know, we live in the United States of America. We have a lot of food, huh? Don't we have a lot of food options? Do you guys ever look in your cupboards and, be, and you're like, wow, look at all this food here. But then you'll notice, oh, that's out of code, that's out of code, that's out of code, because I don't know what, we eat it, we eat like the first, I don't know, 10%, and then we're done with it, we move on. And man, my cupboards are filled with food. And I'm like, I don't understand why, because why don't we just eat, you know? But anyways, I I do know this, that for whatever reason, United States of America, the waste, the food waste, is estimated to be anywhere between 30 and 40% of the food that we, you know, we, we, we buy, we actually waste, we throw away. Californians throw away approximately 6 million tons of, f- of food waste annually. And so now, take that same cupboard at my house, and let's just say I'm surrounded by the Babylonian army or whatever. I'll tell you what, I would eat every single cracker in that cupboard, man. I would eat every single, even though I don't like them, whatever, those gummy worms that they have or whatever it might be, you know, you're going to eat it all, right? I mean, that's where they would be now. All of a sudden, those crumbs are more precious than gold. It, it wouldn't matter if it was out of code, you know? Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, we, we would just, we would grab, it would be rationed, of course, because we know this is going to be for the long haul. Again, Warren Worsby said the Lord commanded him to combine three grains, wheat, barley, and spelt, two vegetables, beans, and lentils, and grind them into flour and bake bread. This combination would produce the poorest kind of bread and there represented the scarcity of food during the siege of Jerusalem. If you want to, maybe jot down Deuteronomy 28, 52 through 57, and later you can read it, how God had warned them specifically, if you don't obey me and you continue to live in that disobedience, eventually the time will come where you will eat your family. You will eat your children. And that's exactly what ended up happening. So not, not, not just the awful food, though. But there, there would also be awful fuel. 
not only in Jerusalem, but wherever they were scattered. Because look what it says in verse 12. And you shall eat it as barley cakes and bake it using fuel of human waste in their sight. And in case you're wondering, I hope this is not a bad word to say, but it's poo-poo. You guys know that, right? Using that as, you know, your fuel to burn it. Then the Lord said, so shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. Now, let me just ask you guys a question. How many of you here, I need you to be honest. How many of you here like cake? Cake. You would eat some cake. Some of you didn't raise your hand. All right, would you eat cake if it was baked on human dung? I'm just curious. Some of you guys would because you know your Bibles. And your Bible says, hey, I just pray for it. It doesn't matter. It's good, right? (laughs) But I think a lot of us here probably wouldn't, right? But if you were hungry enough, you would. And I hate to say it, but you might eat that too. Because there are some people... There are some people who are saying that this was not just the fuel, but it was maybe the food. But I believe more than likely what he's talking about is the fuel. Now, now, now in all honesty, the burning of animal dung mixed with straw was common back then and is still practiced today in the Middle East due to the scarcity of wood in some places. Um, but there's a big difference between animal you know, dung and human dung, and this is where it crosses the line. And so, um, again, not against the law per se in the Old Testament. Um, God did tell them what to do with human waste, to take it outside the city, but as far as burning it for fuel, not real specific, but for a priest, it would definitely be something he would stumble over. Ezekiel, who was a priest, he had a hard time in this particular part of this mission of illustration, he said, Lord, are you sure? It's not kosher. So look at verse 14. So I said, ah, Lord, God, indeed, I have never defiled myself from my youth until now. I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has abominable flesh ever come into my mouth. And so Ezekiel You know, he says, Lord, please don't make me do this. And God in his grace said, okay, look at verse 15. He said to him, see, I am giving you cow dung instead of human waste and you shall prepare your bread over it. And so God said, okay, you can have cow dung. So it's like Ezekiel moved God's heart a little (laughs) bit, right? Through prayer, right? And God is so gracious, God can do this, right? But still, how many of you would say that's still gross? It's still gross, right? Verse 16, moreover, he said to me, son of man, surely I will cut off the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight. And this is what broke my heart. And I underlined it with anxiety. There it is. And shall drink water by measure and with dread that they may lack bread and water and be dismayed with one another and waste away, notice again, because of their iniquity. And as I read this, ah, man, it just makes me want to lift up holy hands. You know, it, it makes me want to be right with God, you know. It's just heartbreaking. Malachi 2, verse 2, it says something interesting. It says, if you will not hear And if you will not take it to heart to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. And so, again, you know, it's the same thing. Like the Lord had always said, I said before you blessing and cursing, right? And again, none of us here are going to be perfect, so I don't want to be, you know, that kind of, you know, legalistic Pharisee to you. But I will say this, that, you know, we have to have a healthy fear of God and let's not live in insistent, persistent, consistent sin. Let's not live in presumptuous sin because the ramifications are are just horrible because God, God wants to bless your life beyond your wildest imagination. So trust him. Trust him. It's so important for us to have that in our hearts. 
God wanted them to have this land of milk and honey there in Jerusalem, but unfortunately became a place of scarcity, hunger, and ruin. And so the, the main message is to Israel, but I will say this, um, you know, it, it wouldn't be easy for Ezekiel. Like I said earlier in chapter 4, verse 9, I want to show you that verse real quick. Look at chapter 4, verse 9. Also take for yourself wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Put them into one vessel and make bread of them for yourself. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. But he doesn't tell him to eat anything during the 40 days. And so if you're here and you want to follow God into the ministry, I I will say this, there will be sacrifices. We see that even in simple things like this, where sometimes God might call us to fast. So the anxiety there, there, if you're living your life in fear and sorrow and heaviness, it's just, it breaks my heart. But that's what sin does. That's what Satan does. You don't have to live in anxiety because of your iniquity and so we see the siege the separation the sin the starvation now in chapter 5 we'll go through it real quick there you're going to see the the three things the scorched the sword and the scattered and this kind of mingled throughout the chapter the scorched the sword and the scattered and then that little remnant right there that are saved look what he says in verse 1 And you, son of man, take a sharp sword, take it as a barber's razor, and pass it over your head and your beard. Then take scales to weigh and divide the hair. You shall burn with fire one-third in the midst of the city. And that might be literally in the midst of the city they were in, or that might be right there on top of the little, you know, tablet of clay where he had, you know, drawn the city. But he burns one-third there. And when the days of the siege are finished... Then you shall take one-third and strike it around it with the sword, and one-third you shall scatter in the wind. I will draw a sword after them. You shall also take a small number of them and bind them in the edge of your garment. Then take some of them again and throw them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. From there a fire will go out into all the house of Israel." And so you're seeing the the action presentations, illustrations, you know, whether it be him drawing it on the tablet, him playing with the soldiers, you know, all around, him lying on his side, him cooking it with uh, cow dung. All those are, are messages intended to make us holy, make them holy. They couldn't save the nation nationally, but they, it could make a difference personally, right? And so now he adds to that, what I want you to do is I want you to take a sword and I want you to sharpen that sword. And then, is there any guys here with long hair? Well, there's girls here with long hair. Imagine if we took your hair and we, and we, and we chopped it off with a sword. It would be weird, huh? That would definitely be a visual, especially for a priest. And as a matter of fact, some people believe that if Ezekiel did this, that he would be then disqualified from the priesthood according to the Levitical law. And so this is what Ezekiel has to go through, the sacrifices that he has to make. But it's all to send a message to the people, right? And, and really the, the main message is the sword was on its way and, and the sword would be just basically judgment. You know, this type of shaving uh, was intended to, you know, be a sign of humiliation and sorrow and mourning. And we know that this sword would be um, God's judgment, which would bring all them uh, to that place. You know, like I said earlier, and we think we have a few things I want to show you. One third would be scorched, burnt. And so that would be those that would be through the famine and the pestilence. Then one-third that would be killed by the sword. And then one-third that is scattered uh, throughout the world. But then there is that remnant, huh, in his hem right here that are saved. Now, I do need to tell you this. Now, when the Babylonians came and they took everyone away, they left some of the people in the land. Now, I don't know if the remnant in, in the hem 
of his garment were in reference to them because even they had some very difficult times. I'm looking at it just to believe the fact that God always has a remnant. And my prayer is that that's you, that you are part of the remnant in the midst of a world that doesn't believe in their creator uh, that unfortunately has rejected their savior, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so look at verse five. Thus says the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. She has rebelled against my judgments by doing wickedness, notice, more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries that are all around her. For they have refused my, my judgments and they have not walked in my statutes. Now, I don't want you guys to miss the, the fact that he's emphasizing the Bible. He's emphasizing the Bible, the statutes, the judgments. The problem with Israel is they weren't living according to the Bible. And so my prayer, you guys, is that we would love it and learn it and live it, this Bible right here. Unfortunately, they came to a place where they were even acting worse than the pagans. Verse 7, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you have multiplied disobedience more than the nations that are all around you, you have not walked in my statutes, nor kept my judgments, nor even done according to the judgments of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, says the Lord God, indeed, I, even I, am against you. Now this uh, little phrase right here in, in this portion where it says, therefore, I'm against you, it, it, it basically it, it, it would be used in those days of one person challenging another person to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat. Okay, so God here is saying, because of what you've done, put them up. <laughs> okay, so and if you go hand-to-hand -hand combat with God, who's going to win? You're like, well, hey, I've been doing Kung Fu Su and I'll be fine. Uh, absolutely not. God says, no, I, I, even I am against you and will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Now, right here, uh, again, it's important to notice how God has set Jerusalem there, it says in verse 5, in the midst of the nations. Now, Jerusalem is set kind of like in the middle, um, geographically and, and really just in, in all ways, like this city. Even today, we see Israel you know, making this news and they're in the, you know, this, you know, place where all these continents converge and nations and, and God says, I sent her there. Why though? Why did he put her right there in the middle of all this? And the reason was so that they could be a light to the rest of the world, right? But instead, what ended up happening is they ended up being the exact opposite. And so, what we find is that they had adopted the wicked ways of the Gentiles and became greater sinners than their neighbors. The object of God's special favor would become the object of God's special judgment. And he goes on to elaborate in verse 9, And I will do among you what I have never done and the like of which I will never do again because of all your abominations. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst. And sons shall eat their, their fathers. And I will execute judgments among you and all of you who remain. I will scatter to all the winds. You know, and, you know, Ezekiel mentions this. Uh, uh, Jeremiah mentions the moms. The moms are kind. It says in Lamentations 4.10, tender-hearted women have cooked their own children. They have eaten them to survive the siege. Now, now, real quick, just as a side note, I mean, I can't even fathom the thought of such a, a, a thing. And you can, you know, just see it literally, you know, physically if you want. But if I think if you're open, you're, you're seeing that how my sin affects my family. My sin affects my children. 
right? You guys know that, right? You know, one of the, the things that we have to be really careful of, and I was reading about this, and it kind of caught my heart, is, okay, we would define sin as missing the mark, right? Sin is missing the mark. And so you can visualize like an, an arrow, and you've got these targets or whatever, and, um, and uh, we've even heard this illustration before, and, you know, um, you know, we figure, well, if he doesn't hit the bullseye, you know, then it, it's sin. Maybe he's in one of the other layers right over here, or maybe a little bit farther from the bullseye. That's kind of how we might see it. But no, um, I was reading one story about a young gal um, in, uh, what city was this? Uh, Milwaukee? I think it was Milwaukee. And unfortunately, she was out there one day. Her name is uh, Ariana Schneeberg. And she was playing in her backyard in near Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and she was struck in the back with an arrow. A neighbor was attempting to shoot a squirrel. You guys shouldn't do that, you know? I know you guys, you don't like those little squirrels and you get your BB guns and you're out there shooting them. No. Anyways, this neighbor was out there attempting to shoot a squirrel with his arrow and then he missed, he missed the mark, but he didn't just hit the, the other part of the, of, the, of, the, of the bullseye thing. He hit someone. You see, and that's what sin is. You know, sin is lawlessness, perpetrators and victims will then be uh, found loose arrows on a city sidewalk in the midst of a pressing crowd are a better illustration of what sin does it doesn't just miss the mark it affects other people it hits other people and when you see dads eating their kids and moms eating their daughters and vice versa I pray it just, it breaks our heart because it is, it is supposed to. And so we read in verse 11, God says, therefore, as I live, says the Lord, surely because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore, I also will diminish you. Now, in the Hebrew, the word diminish, it means shave. And so earlier, Ezekiel had shaved his hair and God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that to you in the aspect of humiliation and shame. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with the famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds and I will draw out a sword after them. Thus shall my anger be spent and I will cause my fury to rest upon them. And I will be avenged, and they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have spent my fury upon them. And so the idea here really is that God's um, judgment or fury had built up a long time. And now um, in this place in their history, um, they would experience this. And so for us, you know, more than likely, I'll bet you a lot of us here could not, um, I guess um, we wouldn't be able to do what God does. God is going to judge people and God is actually going to send people to a place where they will uh, experience separation from him forever and ever. Jesus talks about it, a place where the worm does not die, where the fire is not quenched. That's real. You know, when I read this right here as a pastor, as a brother, I'm sharing with you because, of course, I don't want you to experience any of the ramifications of sin. But we also have to have the heaviness of the reality of it so that we can then go out and share with others. Now, you, I was thinking about this. You might not lie down on your side, although I do encourage you to try it. Let's let me know what happens. I'm just curious. But, you know, when we're talking about what's the name of the study, it is Living Illustrations. You know, it might not be you with an iron pan or you lying on your side or whatever, you, um, you know, eating just a little bit of bread. Maybe it would just be you living, living illustrations. Wouldn't you say, don't you think that the, the, the living illustrations are probably more um, powerful than just the words? Huh, they are. But, but, but as these eagles, they're lying down, he did speak. Right, because we do need to articulate the name of Jesus. We need to tell people the name of Jesus, and we need to share with them the gospel. But if you shine, if you shine, 
then it helps you when you share. You see, and that's what I see going on right here. Because the thing that happened was, um, I'll, I'll maybe finish up real quick. Verse 14, moreover, I will make you a waste and a reproach among the nations that are all around you in the sight of all who pass by. So it shall be a reproach, a taunt, a lesson, and an astonishment to the nations that are all around you when I execute judgments among you in anger and in fury and in furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. When I send against them the terrible arrows of famine, which shall be for destruction, which I will send to destroy you, I will increase the famine upon you and cut off your supply of bread. So I will send against you famine and wild beasts. And the beasts may be um, figurative, speaking of these crazy leaders like in Nebuchadnezzar. They will bereave you. It means that they will kill your loved ones. And pestilence and blood shall pass through you. I will bring the sword against you. I, the Lord, have spoken. And so th- this is why it's good. A lot of people have never read Ezekiel. A lot of people have never read the Old Testament. This is why it's good to get the full counsel of God. His grace is amazing. You know, if you're here and you've been struggling with sin, if you yield to him, guess what? He'll wash away all your sins, make you as white as snow, give you a brand new start, right? But if not, we need to know the holiness of God. And what ended up happening was um, that the, the people of Israel, and here is where I think we really need to learn this lesson. Um, what is the chief end of man? Why were you created? Now, if you get a chance, I want to encourage you to check out the Westminster Catechism. Um, although we don't believe in everything they wrote, we should probably do a Calvary Chapel Catechism. Um, but the Westminster Catechism is a, is a really good document that you can check out online. Um, it has how many questions? 107 questions. That's the way they teach doctrine, right? And the very first question out of the 107 questions is what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the purpose of man? Why was I created? And the answer is to exalt God, to glorify God and enjoy him. Unfortunately, we see here the children of Israel did the exact opposite. It was no longer glorifying God. It was in one sense shaming God because these were the people of God. And look what happened to the people of the Lord. And so for us, that's what sin does. So let's, let's follow God with a sincere heart, live in holiness, glorify Him, and enjoy Him, not shame Him.